From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. You know, you can go select all the right people, but if you don't have the right playbook, and if you're not continually coaching and developing, then you're not going to have the great yield. If I don't fertilize the crop, you know, I might end up with 80 bushel acre instead of what I could do if I did everything, you know, in a very precise manner at the right time. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Mark Cranny, former COO at Skydio. Mark knows what it takes to launch and grow a successful company. Over the course of his career, he's led sales teams at industry juggernauts like PTC, as well as smaller ventures that have been acquired by the likes of HP and Splunk. If you ask Mark where he learned to sell, you'll probably be surprised by his answer. A 20,000 acre farm in Southern Idaho. His journey from herding cattle to teaming up with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz to build some of the great ventures of our era is quite a tale. Let's dive in. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Justin, for having me. All right, we got some great uh, we got some great stories in store for today, and also some great quotes. One thing I've learned about you, Mark, is that you are a man of many quotes. I think that goes back a few generations in time. I want to start off with one of my favorites. I'd be six foot four today if I hadn't sprayed so much Roundup as a kid. So let's get into that one. What what is that all about? Uh, well, that's a I grew up on a large farm and ranch in Southern Idaho, and probably one of my early entries into the workforce was uh, chief weed killer. So <laughs> I burned a lot of weeds on ditches, make sure everything was clear, and then I'd spray the weeds to kill them during the season. And uh, I just, I was just a weed killing machine, and used to come home covered with, you know, Roundup. So I'm pretty sure that's what stunted my growth. So. <laughs> so what kind of a farm are we talking about here? A couple of acres of carrots or something? Uh, it's fluctuated over the years, but rough order magnitude, 20,000 acres they farm. Uh, the, fa- the family settled the area in the early 1900s. So it's a multi-generational farm. My dad farmed with his two, two of his three younger brothers. And uh, I like to tell people I kind of grew up with I grew up with wolves, so because that's essentially what they were. So. Running with the wolves, I love it. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a pretty heavy load to lay on a kid. I mean, you were essentially one of the workers out there, and the family livelihood was to some extent on your shoulders. How'd that feel? Well, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I didn't know any better, right? I, you know, you grow up in it, you don't know that, you know, when you walk out the door, you're working, right? You're it might start with, you know, gram- doing grandma's yard, you know, really early mowing lawns, but pretty quick it was feed the horses, the cows, you know, clean out the stalls and then get over to the shop for further orders and assignments for the day. Uh, one of those would be, you know, killing weeds. So, and that rapidly progressed into a lot more responsibility over time. But I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I learned how to drive at probably seven, eight years old. As soon as you can reach the clutch and it wasn't, you know, the automatic version, it's stick shift and all that. So you start off maybe 
pickup truck and then the tractor and then trucks and then bigger tractors. And, you know, it's kind of fun for about an hour. <laughs> and then it's work. Yeah. Then it became work. So. So one of the themes that we'll return back to is this notion of clocks and scoreboards. I think most of us, when we hear that, we think of the sports context. For you, it was a little bit different, though. Tell us a little bit about clocks and scoreboards and what that had to do with farming. Well, I use it a lot, you know, in the in the kind of sales management world and, and or, you know, supply chain or I mean, you're always got your one eye on the clock, one eye on the on the scoreboard. But on the I think I probably learned it even earlier than that, just on the farm, right? It's really about seasons. You you only have a certain amount of time to get a lot of stuff done in each season and how well you go about your business and how you carry yourself in those responsibilities is a pretty big deal. Because you know, there is it's the great equalizer is time, right? So every farmer has the same amount of time, every athlete, every seller, every product developer. So how you how you use that time, how productive you are is is a big deal. And I you know learned pretty quick on the farm that you know you, you don't have all day long to, to get your work done. So there were consequences <laughs> and accountability. You know, that idea of consequences obviously critical to learn. And the earlier in life you can learn that, the more successful you're going to be. I think honestly, just speaking as a father for a minute, it's hard to teach kids about consequences because so much of the world we live in now shelters them from the consequences that otherwise would occur. Yeah. Well, look, I remember, I mean, I, I'm probably just reuse most of my dad or uncle's terminology, but I remember the old man, he'd get his, he'd get both hands out and he'd, He'd say, look, yeah, there's plenty of carrot out here. It's called carrot, stick, carrot, stick, carrot, stick, 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 right? So one of the consequences was staying away from the stick. It was a little bit less about the, the carrot. I mean, look, it was great to get paid. I mean, I, I made a lot of money when I was a kid. I went to college. I had probably 20, 30 grand saved up. That, that's a lot of money back in those days. It's not a bad amount of money now. But uh, that was the carrot, I guess, uh, although I was probably below minimum wage most of that time. But the stick was what I was a little more worried about. So the two, the three wolves running around chewing on everybody's butt was, you know, kind of the big consequence or with that big ass stick. So, so did you guys, did you guys have horses as well out on the farm? Yeah, actually my grandfather was, uh, uh, he, he bred and raced thoroughbreds over and above. Uh, we had, you know, the, the irrigated farm, you know, potatoes, Beets, wheat, barley, hay, corn, also half of it in potatoes. That's a big cash crop. Uh, and very granular crop requires a lot of, you know, cash outlay, a lot of labor. But uh, and then we ran cattle, too, on several cattle ranches, as well as leased out, you know, Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service Land. So you learn how to cowboy as well. But over and above that, he bred thoroughbreds. My dad and his brothers all grew up breaking thoroughbreds, breaking racehorses and they uh, took a lot of those lessons kind of into their, you know, into everything they did, right? And they weren't exactly what I would call the horse whispers, right? <laughs> like the Robert Redford movie. <laughs> they didn't break things that way. So. Was it quite as romantic as they? No, it wasn't it. quite as romantic. You know, there'd be moments you'd have, you know, this, you know, those were fleeting romantics times. So, <laughs> so, so were you breaking horses as well? No, my, my, my grandfather was killed in, uh, when I was four years old. He was coming back from a race, I believe, in Southern California, I think Santa Anita, one of those big tracks. And he came back into the farm and 
with my grandmother following him they, in a rainstorm. He ran into a herd of his own horses. One came over the top and killed him. And uh, my dad never really, he never liked the horses and the, the farming and the ranching was probably neglected a little bit during that time period. And they were a little bit in trouble financially when that happened. And my dad ended up selling, you know, getting rid of the, getting out of that racehorse business and selling most of them off. So actually all of them pretty quickly. He, he ended up taking over at a fairly young age himself. So probably. So life was tough. You were not sheltered. You were not sheltered from the the consequences of life and some of the hard realities. I know sports was a great outlet for you. Tell us a little bit about sports. How'd you get into it? What was exciting for you? Well, the family did, you know, a long history and listen to how great the, the old man and the uncles were back in the day before they had, you know, face masks and stuff was part of the motivation. But, you know, it, you know, I just gravitated to, to team sports. So played football, basketball, ran track in high school, uh, mostly ran track in high school because anything I, I could get out of working after school, if I was playing a sport, track was an easy choice over working, even though, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of work to track, but I'd rather go to a track meet than sit on a tractor and, and or kill weeds or set water, plant potatoes, stuff like that. So give me out of a few hours of work. I'm going to, I'm going to tell that to my son. He's a track athlete and, uh, puts himself out there on the track and kills him. And I'm going to be like, you know, Mark said, this is a vacation. No, everything to- after, yeah, everything out of, you know, after high school and even college, it's, I mean, that's all playtime, right? <laughs> <laughs> Compared to real work. So it was all, it was all coasting downhill once you made it off of the farm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All they saw me at 18 was the back of my head. So that idea of, of clocks and scoreboards, though, it comes back in sports as well. So there's the, there's the second, point around that which probably got you fired up too yeah i think a lot of people you know particularly when they move over into the 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 work world or the business or professional world they you know they they might lose a lot of that but you know again the great equalizers everybody has the same amount of time what you do uh for that time and it's and my old man actually had a saying that you know i use even today is you know it's not what you're doing uh when everybody's watching it's what you're doing when no one's watching and if you think about athletics as a great example, uh, or even agriculture, that you know the you're spending so much amount of effort and time preparing for a very short period of time. If you're a high school or college, say athlete and say football, and you're going to play 10, 12, 15 games if you're into the playoffs, you know that's 12 hours of performance time that you're working probably year round to prepare for. It's kind of a, you know, if you think about it in that context, it's, you know, what are you doing when no one's around or when you're alone in a weight room or you're running and things of that nature, not when a coach is chewing on your butt to, or you're just doing the minimum required. I think a lot of people lose that when they transition to the, to the work world. I see a lot of, you know, I'd spend a lot of time to have in my career recruiting kids right out of college as well as, you know, 10, 20, 30 year people there, you know, are you, are you preparing like a professional, like it means something or are you, is it just a job for you, right? To earn a living, you know, do you want to be a pro or, or are you going to be a schmo at it? Right. That's something that, you know, I probably learned pretty early. So if you're going to go out and put all that work in, you might as well try to be the best and, and do the extra stuff, not just the minimum required. That's something I got grilled into me very early age. 
that maybe idea. it's just DNA, but it, you know, in the environment, it got grilled into you. You didn't, you know, the old, you know, old man had dropped me off out in, you know, the North 40 or North section and say, go do this, that, and the other, and, you know, take these 20 guys with you to go do it. You know, I'm like 12, right? Not with adults and trying to, you know, I had to figure stuff out. You, you didn't show up without the work done, right? You, you just got it done. And it, and it, it got inspected. I mean, he inspected what he expected uh, and you redid it if you screwed it up. So doing things right and putting the time in is super important to me. Yeah. That notion of, of uh, it's all about what you do when no one is looking is powerful. It's also a powerful way I found to really identify people that excel in the interview process. If you can get underneath how people spend their time when nobody's looking, I think about one woman on my team, she actually was a first generation. English was not her first language, which blew me away. She was a phenomenal speaker, public speaker. And I asked her once, English wasn't your first language. Like, how could that be? She said, you know, uh, when I was in college, I was self-conscious. And what I would do every night is I would go home and I would practice a speech, one speech a night. And I would practice in front of the mirror and I would record myself. And then I would figure out one thing I was going to improve the next day. And that went on week after week after week until I got to the point where I felt like I had mastered it. So everybody celebrates the person on stage, but nobody appreciates the person in the bedroom in front of the mirror that's right. getting ready to be on stage. You put herself on her own DIY Toastmasters and Dell Carnegie class. That's awesome. You've got a, a phenomenal background, first on the farm, then in athletics. You are poised to make make your big break on this the state stage or the stage of sales how did you get into sales in the first place well i uh, played ball played football in college uh and you know in college you you know you're starting to try to figure out what am i going to go do next and you know could have gone back to the family business was an option i knew i wanted to get into business i was kind of steeped in business from the from the family farm uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I, I wouldn't call myself the most, you know, what you, you know, some people think of sales as kind of you know, someone super outgoing and, you know, gregarious and stuff like that. I was definitely not normally kind of quiet, uh, and to myself. Um, but what, what attracted me to the sell side was the, you know, was the competition piece. So having kind of grown up, in a competitive environment on in a family business and then in on the ball fields, where can I go get that day to day in, day out kind of personal benchmark, how I'm doing versus a competitor? It could be somebody across the line from you or uh, a competitor in business or uh, you know, a peer. You know, coaching came to mind for me and and I had plenty of opportunities to to stay on and do that in the at the college ranks, but what attracted me to the sell side was, you know, every day you're, you know, what you get out of it, what you put into it. Right. And, and, and I was very money motivated and I wanted, I didn't want like the idea of having a capped income. I wanted to run my own business, but I liked the team sport aspect of bigger business and, you know, just kind of gravitated to it. Went to LA, interviewed for a few weeks, the closest major city, I guess, other, you know, I could have gone North to Salt Lake, but, seemed a little small to me. So I went down to LA, interviewed with a bunch of companies. A lot of that in those days, kind of high tech was, I'm dating myself, but copiers and fax machines and dictation equipment and 
stuff like that. And ended up, you know, kind of picking my criteria is, you know, where can I go where there's a really good coaching staff and a great training program where I can learn from kind of the best, right? And then, you know, maybe kind of stay in that coaching tree. I'd kind of learned that from, from the family business as well as kind of knowing what a good coach or coaching staff look like and a program and processes and playbooks versus not so good. And ended up joining uh, Harris 3M was what it was called back then. And Lanier was their dictation side of the house and uh, got offers from both sides as well as other companies in that range. And I had another offer to go sell sporting goods equipment. And uh, one of the, the recruiter talked me out of it. He said, Cranny, do you want to sell jocks or do you like to play sports? I mean, you're not, there's, you're, you need to go where there's a good training, you know, where you're going to get good training and, you know, kind of the Pygmalion theory, you know, that first job out of school, I think super important to go uh, figure out how it should be done. Right. And have great mentors. And, uh, and went to work for a couple of gentlemen down in Southern Cal, John Canada, Jim, uh, Leon Townsend, were kind of first, second line manager, you know, prospecting type techniques and closes. And then Leon was a little more smooth as silk, $2,000 suit, kind of soft touch type and two really great styles. And, uh, you know, I had a great time kind of growing up there. So. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So tell me a little bit about what you were like as a copier salesman. Well, what look, they they had a system, right? They had a playbook and a system. And you, you know, every morning you every morning you checked into the office, you got your gear, you had a little rah-rah, and it's like, you know, if you do hundred calls, you get two demos, or you get 10 demos, you'll get two sales a week, right? So I was hungry. I'm saying, all right, well, if they're saying do 100, 10, and two, then I'm gonna do 300, I'm gonna do 30 and you know, do eight, right? I'm I need to, you know, and over time you and I literally just I worked my tail off because I didn't have the luxury of time. It's probably pretty much. I remember uh, going home, telling the wife after I took actually took the job, and she said, "Well, how much is it?" And I go, "Well, it's you know, it's like a thousand dollar a month draw." And she's like, "A draw? What? A draw? What is a draw? <laughs> a draw versus commission, right? So primarily straight commission, but no cap, right? You could you could make as much as you put into it, and." Uh, Look, I broke every record, you know, I think in the West while I was there. Got promoted or actually demoted to Denver within a year, you know, into Denver, which is right in the middle of a big oil bust recession. But uh, that kind of launched me into my sales management career pretty early. So did you ever think twice about that kind of a comp package? Or for you, was that like the greatest thing you'd ever heard of in your life? Well, it wasn't a great thing, but I was more attracted to the upside and what people could make doing that, you know, first yeah. year two out of school versus, uh, you know, the safeness of, you know, a, a, a base salary at a company car and kind of a route job, stuff like that. So I, I, I was, you know, my criteria was upside. It wasn't safety. Yeah. And I knew, I, I, mean, I knew if I could, you know, well-trained, solid product, I can go out hustle anybody out there. It's kind of my was my thought process. No. There's some fundamental wiring here. You love competition. You love to be up against the clock. 
you're going to look at the upside, not the downside. All hallmarks of someone, obviously, that's ready for a great career in sales. So you're selling copiers. How did you get to software? How'd you make that uh, leap? Really it's, I think a progression of, you know, pretty much every, you know, every step up into the software is a kind of a progression into, you know, the harder something is to sell, I, I think uh, the more the more you're valued if you're really good at it. So I wanted to, you know, and getting into more sophisticated products and sales situations is what I wanted to do. So, I mean, I, from, from, you know, two, two, three years out of school, office equipment, great foundation and training. It's kind of like the farm, right? It doesn't get much tougher than that in sales. I mean, this wasn't like banging the phones. It's like physical cold calls, like 100, 300 calls. It's like knocking on doors and getting run out of high rises and stuff. So I eventually got into uh, medical device sales, did a year and a half as an individual contributor, and then got, you know, were promoted several times up. And in my 20s, I was run as a national sales manager for a small division of a, you know, Fortune 300 medical device company. Then I left there and did, to kind of be able to spread my wings and kind of, right, I want to run my own playbook. When did an ultrasound startup in Seattle in the medical device world? And, you know, about in the 96 time frame for a few years. And then, you know, this internet thing happened, right? Some guy named Mark Andreessen and Netscape and the browser. And I was up in Seattle and this Microsoft was blowing up. And, and, and you know, this company called PTC was recruiting a bunch of my old colleagues and my people. And they started recruiting me and I ended up going to work for Parametric Technology, which, you know, it's probably at the time is the largest software company, enterprise software company in New England. It still might be. They're still independent, doing very well. So we've actually had a lot of PTC alum on the show. And they do have a phenomenal program and and an uncanny ability to create future sales leaders. What did you learn while you were at PTC? Well, I learned that I found home, right? It was just a perfect fit for me. I mean, I learned a lot, I think, getting before PTC, but it was a great place to transition into the into the you know the software world. And probably what I learned is look, you can have this kind of super high level of intensity and process, you know, particularly around you know great products and a great new breakthrough uh, value proposition. I mean, they pioneered three D solid modeling uh, with Pro Engineer, and then when I joined, they they had you know working on this really big new category called PLM, product lifecycle management, that was really based on the web type environment, moving people from client server to the web for product lifecycle management, managing kind of bills of materials across the entire design through manufacturing bombs. So this the granularity of the system that they had for success on the sales hot process side was super important. You know, you know, a lot of people hear about Medi, uh, which is a it's not a sales process, it's a you know, opportunity qualification process that that was something that was, you know, being deployed at, at a granular scale there. Uh, I ended up progressing there up to running the Americas, worked with the now founders of Force Management um, who were running ops and sales enablement. We retooled the whole process, sales process for more of that enterprise, enterprise, enterprise PLM sale versus more of the tactical uh, CAD cam sale and, you know, had a great experience over there. 
You know, there are different ways to sell. There are different styles, no right or wrong. But the companies that really excel understand what their style of selling is. They're able to build the hiring profile that attracts the talent that works in their approach. And I think of all the things that PTC does and did, um, number one is they knew who they needed to hire to make the system work. And they did a phenomenal job of recruiting those people. Yeah, I think hiring VP uh, of sales, uh, CRO, even a frontline sales manager, I think the most important thing you'll do, and you know, kind of going back to the farm analogy, I mean, you know, if you start with great, great dirt, everything gets easier. If you start with great people on the selling side, you know, everything gets gets a lot easier. And then, you know, if you have a, a great playbook that you're always iterating on and getting better at, uh, you you spend the the time and the investment up front to get people productive as quick as possible with a great training program and ongoing development of the people, you you can go build an army that, you know, people can plug and plug into and be successful. But if you don't nail that hiring criteria and the culture piece of it, then, you know, you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. So not everybody was cut, definitely was cut out for PTC. You measured your time at PTC, not in years and in quarters, right? Literally. You know, you ask somebody how long they were at PTC, they'll tell you by quarter, right? Because every quarter was like a year. Well, we had McMahon on the show not too long ago, and, and he had some interesting insights to share. He said, you know, when I came to PTC, they were still figuring out the product. It was not a product that sold itself by any means. And I had a decision to make. Do I wait around for that, that uh, incredible product to come off the conveyor belt? He said, no, I don't control that. What I can control are the people that I hire and the culture that I build around them. And in a sense, the need for that sales machine originated to buy the product folks some time to build the product ultimately that they would have. Yeah, I think that's a big gap that that like technical founders don't necessarily understand. And you know, a lot of times they wait until you know they have that product market fit. You hear a lot about product market fit, but you know, product market timing and team is you know adding those other two you know the timing of you know how long do you have uh as well as what team you're putting together and it's not just about the product but you know getting into market and getting a constant feedback loop from prospects and customers and the right ones you know the ones that are further down the adoption path they're going to recognize where you're going with the product is super important in the startup world um and if you wait too long as a, say, a technical, you know, first time founder to go install, you know, a professional go to market team, uh, then, I, you know, you risk setting yourself back dramatically yeah. uh, in the market. So it, it's a good point that, you know, that John made. So, yeah, John actually hired me over there. So that's Mark Granny, former CEO of Skydio. When we come back, Mark talks about how Andreessen Horowitz broke the mold when it came to venture capital and how he partnered with them to teach rising entrepreneurs to nail their go-to-market motion. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Mark Cranny, former COO of Skydio. While at Andreessen Horowitz, Mark learned firsthand what the best early stage startups are doing to grow as well as the pitfalls that many fail to avoid. He'll share his observations and some advice on what it takes 
to both create and communicate real customer value. Let's jump back into the conversation. So you uh, you also mentioned uh, Mark Andreessen. You landed at Andreessen Horowitz for a while, and Andreessen Horowitz is one of those iconic uh, venture firms, and they kind of did it their own way, broke broke the mold, if you will. Tell us a little bit about what makes Andreessen so special. Yeah, so uh, I actually joined joined Mark and Ben before they were Mark and Ben and A and H. Uh, I came from PTC out to the valley to do a kind of redo a startup called Opsware, which is a, originally LoudCloud, which is a main service provider that had, you know, in the the bust, the, the dot com boom had, had gotten public and then you know headed right to bankruptcy and they uh, sold the services business, kept some IP they developed and relaunched the company. So uh, built that company up and with them you know, from about 10 million to 150 in a, I think three and a half, four years. We sold to HP. Mark and Ben went and started Andreessen Horowitz. I did another big data startup uh, that sold to Teradata. And then we, I went in after that, I was just, you know, early in their days, I think a year or two into it, I just went in to go find another operating deal and kind of got sucked in to go help a lot of the, of their founders on their go-to-market. Uh, first as an EIR, and then uh, as a, a full operating partner and started the market development group there. The big difference of Andreessen Horowitz, one of the you know, early theses is we had this guy on our board at Opsor, his name was Michael Ovitz, who built CAA, Creative Artists, the big talent agency in uh, Hollywood. And he had kind of transformed in a decade in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, shift the balance of power from the distribution and production side to the talent side by bringing teams of people to go help the talent, you know, build out their careers. If you had a movie star, they'd bring not just a, somebody who's good at the studios, they'd bring somebody good with TV, somebody maybe get you a book deal or advertising and stuff like that. So they changed the whole comp structure. So it was more of a team approach. Well, Mark and Ben kind of felt that model and would be a great foundation to differentiate uh, Andreessen Horowitz and punch through the noise of venture. You know, in venture, if you take money from a from a firm, you know, all you really get other than the money, and everybody's the, the money's green, is you get one person that goes on your board, and you get whatever operating experience and or whatever network they have, right? And what they wanted to do is change that. So if you think about the company building aspect of of you know a startup, you know, a lot of people we invested in were kind of like Mark and Ben product centric technical founders that, you know, kind of earned and learned a secret. Um, what they needed help with was all the other functions, you know, things like technical recruiting, executive recruiting, PR and marketing air cover, and obviously, you know, more of the sales and enterprise or consumer marketing specialties, as well as fundraising type help. So I came in to help on that go-to-market side. First, it's kind of a consult, you know, kind of consult and give them consulting and advice, but what a lot of them needed was access to prospects and customers. So what I started doing is inviting kind of my network in from the G2000, Fortune 500 companies, government, you know, federal agencies that I called on in my past to kind of pitch them on, you know, access to curated in the innovation from Silicon Valley. And the pitch was, hey, Mr. Ms. CIO or CEO or CMO, you know, you're not getting innovation from your big incumbent 
tech providers anymore. Things have just changed. Um, we look at, you know, first of several hundreds of thousands of deals a year. So we get a good view of what's coming next. Tell me what your initiatives are. We'll curate up an agenda and then introduce you to the entrepreneurs and the kind of the up and coming companies that could help you with those initiatives, both short, medium and long term. And it essentially created a briefing program. It started off, you know, seven or eight and grew up to 30 and then 50 and then 100. And by the time I was done six and a half years later, I think we were doing like 1500 of these briefings a year. It just became a, we build out briefing centers, we pull on the East Coast, we do road shows like 30 a year. And it really helped. Uh, it was great, not just for the, you know, the portfolio companies, it was obvious, but what was kind of surprising was the thirst and hunger from for innovation from the big tech companies or big government agencies. They, I mean, we had like frequent flyer program, right? They just kept coming back. So spent a lot of time doing that. And then 2017 spun out and did a portfolio company called Signal FX, uh, which we sold uh, 2019, late 2019 to Splunk and then uh, joined Skydio shortly thereafter. So, which is another A16 company that we'd uh, invested in 2014. So that idea of building, building the practice where you're bringing these, these corporate accounts in letting them talk to some of the cutting edge companies reinforces the point that companies are always looking for new insights, new innovations. And any sales organization that can walk in and say, I've got something new that's going to help you to think a little bit differently about your business and create value. There's a huge appetite for that. Yeah. That, and look, the way I organized it and the way I thought about it is I just looked at these companies kind of like, you know, if I was sitting over at HP or an IBM or a Cisco and I, had all these different BUs. I mean, you've got this, typically you got a centralized global account team uh, and a lot of BUs, product BUs that have maybe their own sales teams. And, and I just kind of looked at them that way, kind of like I was running a major global account program. And I group all the portfolio companies up into different buckets. You know, here's security guys and here's the, you know, the, the big data crew. Here's the, you know, kind of cloud infrastructure you know, enterprise apps. And we build out a whole consumer kind of marketplace type team and all the consumer platform type stuff that's going on as well. So, and then really organized around, you know, having SDR types, you know, hitting the phones and, you know, blasting any Marketo blasts and getting people on the phone, doing discovery. What's your initiative? And, you know, we essentially go in these briefings where that was the demo was the briefing. Yeah. The portfolio companies get up and do a, you know, 25 minute pitch and, and then it also put us in a unique position to help work with the portfolio companies on, all right, here's your gaps. Yeah. Um, only your pitch. Here's the kind of the sales leadership or marketing help you need to be in or what you might be able to track now, you know, working with our talent teams to, to kind of fill those gaps. And, and here's some, you know, kind of template processes. I used to teach boot camp, you know, a few times a year where the portfolio companies come in and give them templates and kind of starting points to, to go customize off. So it was, it was fun, but yeah, I missed the granularity of really running and operating. And, and I really missed the competitive nature of, you know, waking up every morning with someone to hate, and yeah. kick their butt. So. so you've seen a lot of companies, a lot of series A, B companies. What is the classic mistake that a lot of those companies walk into when it comes to sales? Yeah, I, I mean, one of them is really knowing, I think the adoption curve and you know, being able to properly segment and target who 
in particular verticals, small and or medium, large companies and businesses, who's going to understand and work with them in the early phases, right? And a lot of them just get, you know, they go spend time in the wrong places, get the wrong kind of feedback from the wrong early customers. Uh, so knowing the market, and again, that's where kind of knowing when to bring in kind of professional uh, sales and marketing and customer success type people is super important to help them shape that cycle time. You know, again, I think a lot of them wait too long to, to get that product market fit and they, they're going to get a lot quicker if, if they've got somebody that's had time on bike and, you know, no, has a playbook to go put in place and then to customize for that unique value proposition they're going after. So. So rather than wait for the product to be dialed in, bringing your sales team, you need to you need a certain profile, somebody that's comfortable in that environment. They're then though going to become a uh, a resource for you that's going to reflect what the market is saying and help you to build the product faster. Yeah, there's I see I've seen a lot of mistakes by founders, particularly technical founders, where oh I go get this big company executive that's you know didn't go has not gone through the hard process before, right? That is good at running a show where the playbook's already in place, or maybe it's more of a junior executive, but that junior executive's never had to create a playbook from scratch um, and or take someone else's playbook and customize it for something. And they haven't really been a student of the game per se. They're just, you know, not built for that. So finding somebody, it's it's unique thing to find, but somebody that, that actually is gravitated to that, that has a track record of doing it or has done some of that type of work in maybe a bigger organization. I've heard you talk a lot about value creation. And that's a that's a concept that most companies are talking about nowadays. But what are the companies that are actually delivering value doing differently than those that are just talking about it? Well, I, I think that at a high level, I think you're you know, a lot of people have the conception of go to market is communicating value versus creating it. And I think the creation of it is, you know, knowing what your value proposition can do and has done for other customers, or if it's really early that, you know, just kind of that secret you've earned and learned and what you're building, being able to find the right customers are going to recognize that and then really rolling up your sleeves and becoming a team member, right? You put yourself in their shoes. You can kind of bridge that gap, uh, whether that's the, the two big drivers of value creation or, you know, the technical validation event or the demo and proof of concept, the POC, and building, you know, the business case and the ROI, right? If you think about at a high level, put yourself in a buyer's shoes, they're answering three basic questions. Why do anything different? And what I'm doing now, you get them past that. It's like why you over the alternatives versus you know even do nothing, which is a major alternative you got to overcome. And then why now? That why you over someone else? That's where the proof of concept, typically the technical validation, comes into play, and the business case starts to form. You know how quick? You know how are you doing that now? What does this cost you? What does this cost you in labor? What does this cost you in risk? What does this cost you? You know, could this potentially reduce costs and or increase your revenue? Things of that nature. You get a, you start to build the metrics part of uh, medic, and you're but you're really you know roll sleeves rolled up working with the customer and showing them how to do it. And if you have a playbook for showing them how to do it, you know, well, here's how the proper way to 
do a technical validation event. I mean, I'm going to know more about how to evaluate my product or my category of products than a lot of my customers are just because we work with so many other businesses doing the same thing or government agencies, whatnot. So we can kind of take that learn learnings and you know, your go-to-market should be a major part of your differentiation over and above over and above just your product. And, you know, kind of back to what John said, look, you know, he built something early on at PTC. He had to go kind of create the value himself, right? Go find the right customers. I know the story, right? And the first customer was John Deere, right? And it was, you know, you know, probably the first conversation was, what is it? And, you know, John probably said, well, what would you like it to be? <laughs> right? So, um, so, I mean, getting that continuous feedback loop within, and getting enough data points in the market and or the use cases you want to feed back into the NPI, new product introduction or creation, you know, the engineering crowd. So I think people just underestimate uh, a strong technical team coupled with a strong go-to-market team. I mean, that's really when things can get super successful. The other thing that's important about the, the notion of value creation is the idea that you've got different personas who all value different things. And the smart players are the ones that are cognizant of the whole playing field. Yeah, I think in, in any go-to-market, just to simplify it, you really have three basic buckets called the value pyramid. If you look at any, any company or agency I've ever dealt with, you get to the high level, they have, a company has objectives, they have strategies, they have initiatives. Well, the CX, the C-level, CXOs are the ones that are setting those and most intimate with all that. Mid-level management, VPs, directors, cross-functional teams are kind of, you know, they're focused on the initiatives. So the initiatives are already funded, right? That's what, because it's going to support a strategy. Well, below an initiative is the people, the process, and the technology to fulfill the initiative. So that's a, you know, they have a different set of buying criteria than the CXO level does. And then at the, it, it's kind of the, the foundation or the bottom of the pyramid or or the, you know, what's the solution, right? Um, that's going to fit in there from a tech standpoint with the people and the process. And they're the ones more concerned, the users and user buyers on the speeds and feeds. And most go to markets, they orient too much around just that one. And if you think about back to that, why do anything? Why you over others? Why now? The CXO is more the why now, or maybe even the why do anything. The mid-level management's going to be, and, and the user buyers are really going to be into the, the technical validation event, but, you know, building the business case. So you can go through the whole sales process. You can beat out all your competitors, but you, you could lose to that one big competitor of do nothing in your space because something else is more important. Something else is more important to that initiative. So understanding what the buying criteria is for those three high-level personas is super important for any seller or sales management uh, person to really be checking. And that's one of the things kind of medic is a kind of a quick check of where you're at. You know, the E in medic is economic buyer, right? You know, the M is metrics, you know, the D and the two D's are decision criteria and decision process, right? You're not going to get all that from one of those personas. You've got to, yeah. and I used to, I tell my guy, my people all the time, I said, look, if you go win, because you're running like a campaign in a, you know, to get something through Congress, right? You might go win the users. I, you know, you probably have a, a, 
a 33.3% chance of actually getting a deal if you don't win the other two buckets. If you win the users and the mid-level management, you know, 66.6, not bad. But if you go do all three, you know, if you do all your work, you know, your, your win rates are going to go way higher, right? And if you're not qualifying everything along the way, you're uh, putting yourself at risk. So you mentioned previously that sometimes you think about a sales rep as soil. If you have great soil, you're going to have a great yield. Maybe building on that analogy, how do you increase the yield of a salesperson? Well, after the hiring, right, the, the selection criteria, I think, you know, uh, you know, investing in the front end of the process and great training, but also continued development. Uh, there's a lot that goes into training. There's product, there's market, customer, you know, personas and things of that nature. And then it's the sales process. And then it's inspection and freeing them up to do the right things and getting them the right resources to be successful. So uh, if you're you know, you can go select all the right people, but if you don't have the right playbook and if you're not continually coaching and developing, then you're, you're, you're not going to have the great yield. So, you know, it's like if I, if I don't fertilize the crop or give it enough water at the right time, you know, I might end up with 80 bushel acre instead of what I could do if I did everything, you know, in a very precise manner at the right time to get 150 bushel to the acre. It's the same piece of dirt, same amount of time, you know, it's when and how I'm taking care of all that. And when I'm, you know, even when it's not growing something that you're taking care of it for the next, the next, the next season. So, you know, even other granular things like, you know, look, we're a growth company, your territory is going to get small over time. And sales managers, particularly frontline sales managers have a hard time, you know, Hey, I got to cut your territory back. Well, Actually, they get more productive if they have less accounts and territory, if they're kind of forced to focus on where they should be and, and not just chasing bluebirds all the time. You know, that's it's kind of a discipline you've got to watch across the board. You know, the finance piece of it's super important as well. When to add new sellers, how to peel off territories, but peel off where you're giving the new seller something to work on. You just get more productive over time because you're just laying in more crops. You know, you, you know, people call them cohorts. I call them crops, right? Measuring the productivity of every cohort that goes through the system. What is their time to first blood? What is their time at, you know, six, nine, 12 months where they're getting into productivity? You can see all that in a spreadsheet. What are the things that are holding us back in that productivity model? What are we measuring that, that's going to give us early indicators, right? So that's a great analogy. Well, Mark, the time has flown by. We'll end on this question. As you look back across your life, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what is the thing that has made the biggest difference in your life, in your career in general? I mean, I, you know, I think it's just upbringing, right? The, you know, I, you know, had a little, I, you know, it seems like a tough upbringing to maybe people on the outside, but yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. The old man, you know, the uncles, you know, putting, I was stressed, you know, stretched and held accountable at an early age. I think, you know, by the time I was 18, I was very baked, right? Everything I've done since I left the farm has been easy, right? It's kind of like playing ball versus, you know, real work to me. So I think that's been a big difference. This is well, easy. <laughs> Talking to you, you know, that's a little harder, but. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for putting up with me, Mark. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Justin. Good luck. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. 
For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.